Property Matters here on Dublin South FM. You can contact the show on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn at iPropertyRadio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Your host for today is myself, Carol Tallon, and I'm delighted to be joined by Ronan Lyons, Assistant Professor at Trinity College Dublin and author of the latest staffed rental report. Uh, Ronan, today's a busy day for you, so thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me on, Carol. Um, Ronan, the latest staffed rental report, um, you might just talk us through some of the, the headline figures. I mean, look, the, the one that jumped out to me was certainly about stock levels, um, but you might just take us through some of the key findings. Absolutely, yeah. So the, the, the report looks at the, the last 12 months, so it, it looks mostly at the, uh, the, the, the COVID era of the, the rental market. And it's really... It covers the whole country and there's kind of two separate stories. There's the Dublin story and there's the story in the rest of the country. In Dublin, rents have fallen by a little bit more than 3% over the, the last year. Whereas in the rest of the country, they're actually up by about 5.5%. And that 5.5%, yeah, there's a little variation, but pretty much anywhere you go outside Dublin, rents, rents are up year on year. In Dublin, it doesn't matter where you go, really, rents are down. So you can look at all the different postcodes and, yeah, again, there's a bit of difference um, some places, Dublin city centre has fallen a bit more. South City has fallen a bit more. Uh, and then if you go to West Dublin, it's fallen a bit less. But by and large, it's down in Dublin and, uh, and up elsewhere. And as you mentioned, this is a story really about supply. Prices are just what happens. Rent prices going up or down is just what happens when supply meets demand. And if there isn't a lot of supply there, you'll get rents going up. And if there's an improvement in the situation, rents will come down. And that's what's happened over the last year. The supply situation in Dublin has actually improved. More rental properties have come on the market, and that's eased a crunch in rents or a spike in rents, and whereas in the rest of the country, that hasn't been the same. Uh, Ronan, you know, I, I'm always a fan of reading the reports that you author because you bring uh, maybe a human element into the numbers, you know, and, and that really shares a deeper insight. So in terms of the supply you know, is the increased supply in Dublin, we'll just take the Dublin market first before we sure. look outside of Dublin. In the Dublin market, is the increased supply uh, a real increase um, in terms of numbers or is it just that there are fewer people taking up the stock that was there so it's it's feeding into a larger supply? Well, so, I mean, this is a great question. I, I was I was only tweeting about this earlier, about uh, an increase in supply. And so some people said, well, what if it's a fall off in demand, not an increase in supply? They'd give the same result. So I think the best way of looking at that is if you look at the number of ads that come on the, the market at any particular point in time. So on average, Dublin used to see about 2,100 rental ads per month in, say, if you go from, say, April 2019 to December 2019, so kind of pre-pandemic, Dublin was seeing about, um, about 2,100 rental homes coming on the market per month. That increased to 3,100 uh, in the following uh, uh, period. So April 2020 to uh, December 2020, the kind of the, the pandemic month. So there's a big increase in, in supply. All of those properties found a renter. So there's actually a big increase in demand as well. But the liquidity, the, the activity in the market improved and that brought rents back down. And it, it's kind of helpful to think about, OK, how does Dublin look compared to the rest of the country there? Because in the rest of the country, COVID has had the opposite effect. So this is not like a, a foregone conclusion that COVID was always going to have this effect. 
in, in the rest of the country, the market has seized up even more, a bit like the sales market. In the sales market, there's, there's um, anytime there's a level five or a lockdown, whatever you want to call it, um, the, the market seizes up. There aren't the same number of homes for sale, and that leads to a, a fall off in transactions. Whereas, as I say, the, the rental market outside Dublin is like that, but the rental market in Dublin has been different. Okay. You know, I, I'm, I think it's really interesting when you talk about even the behavioral side of this, because at the start, like, you know, uh, certainly 10 months ago, 11 months ago, we were thinking about what the likely impacts would be. And there were lots of predictions made. Um, so many things have not gone as predicted. So in terms of not just the rental, but actually uh, the marketplace in general, what has been your biggest surprise looking at the data now, uh, you know, now that we're into Q1 of 2021, looking back at 2020, you know, what are some of the surprises? I think if if you'd sat someone like me down a year ago and said, there's going to be um, an extraordinary pandemic, it's going to last at least a year, uh, everyday activity is going to be restricted so heavily, bars are going to be closed for a year, restaurants are going to be closed for most of it, lots of shops are going to be closed, unemployment is going to go up 20 to 20% or 25% of the workforce. Somebody like me, after recovering, would have said, well, it's obvious that rents and sale prices are going to fall, and they're going to fall by 10, 15, 20%. That's what you'd expect to happen when you get such a big increase in uh, in unemployment. In, and, and if you look back at 2008, 9, 10, that was um, the story of the rental market, and it was at least half the story in the sales market. In the sales market, there was also the credit market realigning, but a, a big chunk of the falls was to do with unemployment rising and incomes falling. We haven't seen that. We've seen sale prices go up over the last um, uh, over the last twelve months, and not just in Ireland. It's not like Ireland is some sort of freakish property market. If you look at Britain, if you look at many places in Europe, and indeed in, in the US as well, sale prices for property have gone up during COVID, and some of that might be to do with the unprecedented level of protections for incomes or the oddly. What's the the bifurcated or like what they call the K the K shaped recovery in that you've got some sectors that are not affected at all. You have people working in financial services or public services, and their incomes are the same and their expenditure is down, so there's more money, uh, even as there are other people who've lost their jobs. And um, but but some of it as well, I think, is to do with a, a, a potentially due. We don't have the evidence to say this definitively yet, but I think some of it is is down to um, a change in preferences, both as consumers and as as wealth holders and um, that people are looking at property as an investment where well actually we're you know when everything else fails we're still going to be stuck in our homes so actually we want to think long and hard about the kinds of homes we, we live in as renters or as buyers yeah I, I think that's a really interesting one um because it really you know this reminds me of maybe when you and I first met over a decade ago and we were talking about the fallout of the crash and the same thing, trying to predict behaviours and trying to look at maybe where we saw uh, leaders emerge um, through the sector that, that were likely to lead us into recovery. And, and you know, there, it feels like an element of this where um, sometimes the behaviour doesn't correspond with what we might expect in the marketplace. Um, and I, that's why I think it's interesting to see where the price increases and decreases are happening, you know, in terms of rental and everything, because there's been so much talk about uh, potential remote remote working and things like that. And, uh, you know, we haven't yet seen evidence to back that up, even though anecdotally we're seeing it everywhere. 
So is there anything kind of in the stats that tells us actually, um, you know, the, the rents, the rents increasing outside of Ireland. Let's just take kind of some of the city, some of the cities. So um, Limerick saw, or sorry, uh, Waterford saw the largest increases. You know, yeah. that was, arguably that was coming off the lowest base. And, and that, that's part of it. Is I think you almost have to break Ireland down into three types of market. There are the Dublin markets, there are the other cities, and then there's the rest of the country. Yeah. And in the rest of the country, you have this phenomenon of COVID actually worsening the shortage, that the mark, rental markets have seized up. There were only five properties to rent in Offaly last week, anywhere in the county. You know, it's, 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 it's extraordinary, and that's what's pushed rents up. And you could say some of that is people working uh, more, more remotely. That's why there's so few. But we're not seeing the same volume of properties coming down in, in Offaly or in other places as we would have seen pre-COVID. So it, it doesn't really stack up. Um, and as we've talked a, a good bit about Dublin, Dublin, it's had the opposite effect. The other cities are somewhere in between that the, the um, supply is, is up, like in Dublin, but rents are up, like in rural Ireland. So what we're seeing there, I think, is maybe the first signs that people are willing to think about what you'd call intercity swaps, that they, they did live in Dublin, but you know what, they're going to try Limerick or Galway or Waterford or Cork, and exactly as you said, because you get a, a city life, but it's significantly cheaper. The average rent in Dublin is about €2,000. The average rent in the other four cities, if you kind of lump them together, is about €1,300 or €1,400. Euro. So there's a, a good bit of savings there. And sure, maybe sure. Look at maybe we'll have to go back up to Dublin when everything's back to normal. But that's six months or twelve months away, so uh, we can make that call closer to the time. And in the meantime, we'll save the money. It's not, though. I think, as as you were saying in, in the question, it's it, we haven't seen yet this kind of politician's ideal of you know everyone's going to go off to Ackle or to the Blasket Islands, whatever. And people, it doesn't really matter where you work. I was I was reading an interview with someone who's who moved to Ackle. And it was really telling you know, that they um, they were saying in it, I can't wait to get back to, to a town or to a city and to have cafes and so on. So even the people who are embracing the the kind of the remote living, the, in the, the, the true sense of the word, people are not just workers. They're also, as economists say, consumers or livers, maybe is a better way of saying it. There's lots of other aspects of our lives that we love being around other people for. Um, and, and I don't think that's going to change because of COVID. Uh, Ronan, don't burst my bubble. I am one of the people who drank the Kool-Aid. I'm yeah. definitely intending to head west. <laughs> so, don't don't burst my bubble completely. But no, you'll find the bargains. <laughs> if you're willing to do that, then it'll be cheaper because there won't, it looks like at the moment there won't be floods of people doing it. Yeah, but I, I suppose that that brings itself to kind of a bigger question. You know, we're looking at the rental prices, but at the moment, um, professional built rent hasn't really happened outside of uh, Dublin and Cork is uh, is there an appetite do you think for investment that it would be needed in the other regional cities like Waterford like Limerick like Galway well and you can go even beyond that you can think about Tullamore and Carrick and Shannon and Sligo and Kilkenny and, and Drogheda and like all these places need significant increases in market rental in in social rental There's a, there, there are whole categories of housing we don't really have in this country um, for, for younger and older. We, we, we have so many family homes, we don't know what to do with them. But it's all the other kinds of homes were, were short. And, and you've, you've touched on, I think, probably the, the key point for the, 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 the housing system in Ireland in the 2020s, which is a, a understanding how to get viability in places where currently they're so far from viability. Like if you take, as you're saying, build to rent, 
we've lots of plans for Dublin, about 30,000 units in Dublin on the way. That's what they say. Uh, and then maybe two or 3,000 in, in Cork and nothing elsewhere. But of course, that's not the, the pattern of, of demand, but that's the pattern of viability, that you, you can't make the numbers work. No matter how good a financial wizard you are, if you go and try and put in an apartment block of uh, 100 apartments in Sligo town, you ju- you'll have to charge rents of you know, 1,400, 1,500 a month for a two bed. And that's twice what the, the market's going to bear. So we, we need to, like if I were a, the housing minister, I wouldn't be looking at this report and saying, well, that's it, job done, rents in Dublin down 3%, uh, rental issues are solved. It's okay, it, it proves that supply will help. It proves that the more supply you have, the, the more rents will come down. But the challenge of viability is, is still there. You know, I um, I actually had a conversation with somebody who works in one of the um, housing organizations, the nonprofit housing organi- organizations last week. And she is looking at a move uh, within Dublin and she just expressed her frustration to me. She said, here I am working for one of these organizations. I don't qualify for social housing and I can't even afford to rent an apartment on my own. So I'm going back in my 30s to rent a room in somebody's house. Yeah. What have, so what have we gotten so wrong? So the way I think about this is, like the central bank rules um, for, on the sales side, they, they have the clever side effect, not accidental at all, of, of linking sale prices for housing to the real economy. So no matter how crazy things get, they won't get as crazy as they were 2004, five, six, seven, where you could have house prices had kind of gone up to seven or eight times household income. But nobody ever, no part of government has done the same for the construction cost side of things. So even if you get free land and even if you have zero profit, it's still very expensive labor materials um, to to put in new housing, whether it's for sale or for rent. So, So of course, the supply side only ever cares about that prices to costs bit. Somebody's controlling prices, but costs have been allowed to drift up. And some of that is 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 maybe down to the sector itself. Some of it is maybe down to regulation, that the, the, the kind of well-intentioned regulations, if you don't have countervailing measures, if you make it zero energy efficiency, if you make everything fully accessible and nine foot ceilings and balconies, all that kind of stuff, um, all that may add bit by bit to cost. And what you're actually doing is not making the standard of housing better. You're just pricing out lower income households. You know, there's two things that you've touched on there that I'd love to to delve into just a little bit um if you have a few extra minutes and that is one um do you accept the, do you accept that actually in terms of the cost of building that I, I think the figure the industry figure is that almost half isn't around the cost of building um almost half of that is land administration um and and uh, local authority levies is that is that is that an accurate <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's 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 hard to give an all-in-one because the, the 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 side costs will vary so much. Like if you're buying um, in the in the centre of Dublin, down in Grand Canal Dock or something, versus if you're buying a site um, out in uh, Drogheda, you know, it's 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 going to be very different. And the construction costs stay the same pretty much. It might vary a little bit, but basically the construction costs stay the same. So it's hard to give all, all in averages. But yeah, certainly the what were typically called the soft costs and the land costs. Um, they definitely add to the, the base of hard costs. But a lot of those soft costs, say the profit margin, uh, government's VAT, they're percentages. So if you reduce the hard costs, you're reducing the soft costs as well. Okay. All the marketing fees will be a percentage of the 
um, uh, the, the costs that have been paid. So again, if you can get the, the core down, you actually have knock-on effects, which is not to say we shouldn't look at how we tax or look at how uh, tax land or new development. It's not, not to say we should ignore issues like that. Of course, we should look um, look at those things. Um, but if, we're, if, if we, we could do our damnedest and fix all those things, we'd still be left with the issue of, of high construction costs. Okay, but we know that the construction sector itself is on um, a, is driving a huge initiative at the moment towards digital build, and that's all with the aim of increasing output, uh, driving efficiencies, so as not to increase um, costs. I, I, you know, we're seeing this move towards offsite construction and other methods of, yeah. of, of modern construction, and I understand this. This isn't your area, you know, so I definitely don't want to throw this one at you. But I, I think it's really important for us to understand because one of the, one of the sources of frustration when we came out of the crash is that I felt uh, just from, from a kind of an almost uh, a non-expert view of it was that the recovery, the pace of the recovery after the, the crash seemed to surprise everybody. So there wasn't time taken or the opportunity wasn't used to make improvements then that ought to have been made. So now, you know, we have this unprecedented uh, pandemic and, and impacts. And I'm just wondering, are we missing another opportunity to actually drive real change that could actually have an impact on, you know, persistent issues like affordability? Yeah, I mean, it, you're, you're, you're singing or preaching to the converted um, uh, on, on that. I wrote a piece at the end of 2009. So this is kind of in the height of ne- um, you know, negative equity, mortgage arrears and so on. And I said, like this, this, we're, we're entering a rental shortage in Dublin. And, it's, and, and part of the problem is that nuance gets lost in politics. So it's possible for some parts of Ireland, for example, the Northwest, to be suffering from a glut of housing that's unused and other parts of Ireland, in particular, say the Dublin rental market, to be suffering shortages. They're not perfect substitutes for each other. So the, both those things are possible at the same time. But it, it really took, I'd say, until 2014 or 2015 for the idea of shortages to be back on the agenda. And that's frustrating because you, you can be banging a drum for, in that case, five years before, it, it, and I'm not the only one, the others saying it as well, before um, you realise it. My, the current drum I have, the current drum I'm banging, is around uh, housing for the diverse ways in which we live at the moment. And this is something that's been kind of ignored in the 2010s. It was like, let's just get the number of homes built up. And as far as politicians are concerned, when you build a three-bed MED, that's the homes you want to build. Families are voters. And that's, you know, if you can get 20,000 of those, you're done. But if you look at where population, our population is changing, we're adding so many 70, 80, 90 somethings to our population. We're adding 20 and 30 somethings, pre-family households to our population. And that is something that's going to happen over the next two, three decades. And we really need to get away from building kind of 90% of our homes being either one-offs or estate housing to building everything from assisted living and independent living complexes for older households, downsizer apartments, urban core, uh, high-rise apartments, and, and then even the dreaded kind of student accommodation and co-living sector. You know, like if, if you've got a million single persons aged between 20 and 39, it's not inconceivable that we that the country would need five or 6,000 co-living units. And, and you know, as, as sacrilege and heresy as it is to say in Ireland today, that's where we're going in the next 20, 30 years. Yeah. Are you surprised? I am so delighted that you went on to the different classifications of living because um, 
that was exactly the, the final topic that I wanted to discuss with you because it feels like a decade ago, uh, I'm not going to say you were single-handedly doing it, but you were definitely one of the voices championing this need for uh, Irish uh, people in Ireland to embrace apartment living beyond, um, you know, as a, uh, you know, beyond yeah, as your first professional, um, you know, yeah. where you're where you're living professionally. Um, but that actually, you know, and and I would argue that uh, apartment design has not improved enough over that decade to make it attractive for a lot of families. Um, so there's, and I know there's huge work being done um, in all the city centres actually to target this, but in terms of the categories that you touched on, you know, how have we moved on a decade and yet it feels like we have fewer housing types and fewer housing options because the bottom rung of the ladder has been taken away completely. And and look, when, when, the market abhors a, a void. So we know you take away the bottom rung of the ladder and we get you know, shared living and co-living. And by banning that, have we just almost taken away two rungs of the ladder? And I say this with an adult daughter at home. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, and this is, you know, this goes through to things like um, people objecting to planning permissions. Of course, they have a right to object to planning permissions. But I think given the country is short so many homes, that anyone who's a serious objector should say, look, I don't think this is the right development here. So this is my counter proposal, right? Like we're talking about a country that needs, and everyone has their own figures. My own calculations are given where our population is likely to be in terms of size, location, and age by mid-century, we need something like 45 to 50,000 new homes a year of all types. Uh, and in print, you know, principally non-family households, the majority of, of households already are one or two persons, and that's only going to increase as, as the years go on. Um, yeah, how, how have we ended up where we are with, with things looking actually more kind of monotonous maybe than, than 10 or 15 years ago? I think part of it was that the, the base we had 15 years ago for building non-family homes was a fragile base, it was tax breaks. That was the only reason. And, and, and they were a great idea when they were in kind of um, urban renewal schemes. And then they kind of went into, let's get votes in constituency schemes. And, and, and that was just a terrible idea. I mean, we saw that in the, in the fallout of the, the, the bubble. So for, for me, it, does it, you know, the, the number one priority, and it's, it's, already, it's, it's, it's kind of like going back to something we talked about earlier, but in a way that just confirms hopefully that it, it is all actually coming back to the same core questions. If I were Minister for Housing, the single most important thing for me to understand is why it is so expensive to build housing for one or two person households in Ireland compared to other countries. Uh, and, and, you know, is it is it the productivity in the sector? Is it the methods they use? Is it wage rates? Is it taxation? Is it how we um, uh, sell uh, and trade land? We need those answers because we can't solve the problem until we've we've uh, we've tackled those. As it is, the kind of business as usual cases, we just keep going further and further away from town centres and city centres, building on greenfield sites, building more three and four bed semi-Ds and, and effectively trapping people in those until they die. And, and, and that's not the way other countries do housing. And I don't think it's the way we should do housing. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. And I mean, one of the topics that I, I, I'm so sorry that we have to wrap up now, because one of the topics that we didn't get onto, but you touched on, was about um, uh, housing for I think you mentioned housing for the elderly whereas I would see it more as maybe uh, not even step down accommodation but certainly 
accommodation that for downsizers, but within their yeah. own communities. Exactly. Um, you know, look, I, I suppose, you know, in 60 seconds, is there a way to unlock uh, spaces within community, underused spaces. D- 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 okay. As briefly as I can, um, I, I, I think you've touched on a really key issue, which is we need some integration between health and housing in, in, in from a policymaking point of view so that we get, say, um, in particular, assisted living, but even independent living on the table and that it's a zoning category and that there are targets set per um, per decade or, or per three or four year period, whatever it might be, because that's going to be key. But even aside from the sort of integrated healthcare stuff, there, as you say, downsizers will happily downsize when it's in their area. You talked about, will we live in, in apartments? And the funny thing is where they've been built, apartment blocks in say Terenure or Blackrock or Castleknock, they're disproportionately lived in by over 55s. So we have absolutely no problem living in them. We just don't have enough of them. Okay, no, that's an it's an interesting one, Ronan. I I would love to chat to you for so many more hours about this, but we'll have to leave that for another day. That was Ronan Lyons, professor, assistant professor at Trinity College Dublin, and author of the Daft Rental Report. We need to take a quick break now. Stay tuned. Ninety three point nine, Dublin South FM. Hello and welcome back to Property Matters on Dublin South FM with myself, Carol Tallon. You can contact us on Twitter at iProperty Radio or hello at iPropertyRadio.com. I'm now joined by Louisa Dickens, co-founder of LMRE. Louisa, thank you so much from jo- for joining us today from a snowy London. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. And yeah, London is looking pretty beautiful, but it is absolutely freezing. Yeah, well, we're it's freezing here, but we haven't got the snow yet. Um, so first of all, just for people who aren't familiar, uh, LMRE is a well-known brand in the UK, but maybe not so familiar in Ireland, even though you do work internationally. So you might just um, give our audience an overview of LMRE. Yeah, of course. Um, so LMRE, we are a specialist property technology uh, recruitment firm. So we first started in the UK, then expanded across Europe and then from relationships of us expanding US uh, companies in the UK and Europe, we then were like, what are we doing just over here when the prop tech scene in the US is about probably five years um, in advance of us? So then, yeah, launched a year and a half in, across North America. And now we, as of two months ago, we launched in APAC. And then there's three core parts of our business. So one is helping early to later stage. Uh, property technology startups to grow as uh, so that can be across all roles from deep tech like product engineers to the sales people the customer success of strategy second part of our business is um and i think one of the most exciting parts especially since the year of covid which is really pushed forward digitalization of the traditional real estate and consultancy world is we work like the james Lang themselves the oxford properties when they need to digitalize, and that could be globally. So that could be a super junior data scientist to who on earth is putting together their digitalization strategy. And then the third part of our business is working with the uh, VCs. So that could be the likes of Metaprop, AO, Fifth Wall. So we could help them out hiring, you know, a principal. So the person who's sort of looking, you know, how they're going to raise their funds, you know, to an analyst who's looking at, you know, what prop techs they're, uh, going to invest in so those are the three core areas and it sort of changes every every single day as more um 
I guess more investment and development goes into this space. So it's been a hell of a journey, but um, yeah, no, really enjoying it. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, I'm delighted to be able to speak to you today because I can see not just the international reach, but also you're you're actually spread right across the entire ecosystem. So you've got the startups working directly with them. You know, you have the the VCs who are funding and in a way kind of um, almost shining a light on the, on the future of the industry. Um, but also you're working with the traditional industry to bring them along. So you have a really good overview. So, I mean, really to start with, where do you think we are? And this might be too broad a question. So let's just take it from the UK. Where do you think we are in terms of tech adoption across the built environment? Um, that is a very good question. And it's a very difficult question to answer. Where are we? Um, we've definitely seen an increase in adoption, like I mentioned, since the pan- pandemic. I think we've def- it's also in certain areas. I think everyone's talking about the future of the workplace. So there's been massive growth in sort of tenant engagement. Um, I also think as well, especially since the change in president in the US, there's been there's gonna be a massive shift of investment into climate tech as well. We've already seen in Europe, like the Nordics, and I think the UK adoption in um climate tech or you know ESG, you know, everyone loves talking about it. Do we all quite know what that is yet? I don't know. It's like a buzzword. Those definitely are the two growth areas I've seen in the adoption and also investment. And it's it's high on everyone's genders. Um I think if you sort of follow where, I guess, where investment is good, like going, that's where you'll see further adoption. So I think in, I think in 2019, there was $19 billion that went into PropTech and there was a further $32 billion that went in 2020. And we're only, I presume, unless something crazy happens, we're just going to see that investment go up. Um, and that's obviously, you know, what's driving the VC community and the major funds to invest is the promise of ever increasing returns in a market that's sort of ripe for reform and innovation. So like I mentioned, climate tech, sustainability and construction tech as well. But I, I, I would say it's across like all verticals and every single day I'm introduced to a new vertical with a sexy new name, which has tech at the end of it. Um, I think it's on everyone's sort of agendas. Um, but yeah, the more investment goes in, the more products we're going to see, which is super exciting. Yeah. Do you know, I'm actually trying not to engage with all of the new buzzwords that have tech at the end of it, because I think, you know, in a way that just highlights how immature this sector is. Mm. You know, the fact that, you know, it would be almost like, you know, a writer calling themselves, uh, you know, in tech because they're writing on a computer 20 years ago, you know, and, and it feels like that, you know, we're talking about technologies that would be just ubiquitous to the operations of the job um you know so i, I so actually i think the hallmark for success for prop tech and all of these other um all of these other sectoral techs will be when we stop using those words that that's yeah. just how, how <laughs> business operates but um, i think it's really interesting that you're seeing um the you know a, a, across these esg metrics and all around the sustainability i think it's really interesting that you're seeing both uh, an increase in adoption and uh, an increased focus from the VCs because those two strands hardly ever work side by side. Now, maybe the pandemic is shining a light uh, and making it easier for the industry to know where they need to be and for the VCs to know where the funds need to go. But, you know, generally speaking, um, you know, if we look back historically, not just PropTech, but all tech investment, generally the VCs could be almost a decade ahead of where the industry adoption is. So if we're starting to see those streams run side by side, I think that's really exciting. And 
you know, maybe we did a little bit in fintech as well. So maybe that's that's what is in store for PropTech over the next number of years. But I think that's really exciting. You know, it, yeah. it, will, it will take away this challenge of um, digital transformation across the, the industry because they will understand that this is how we do business. You know, um, yeah. it has become such a cliche to say that the pandemic has accelerated the rate of tech adoption across the built environment but it absolutely has you know particularly if you're talking about traditional estate agency uh, right through to traditional construction sites it absolutely has accelerated there's no way meetings would have been done via zoom you know people were flying to different countries for site visits and site site walkthroughs that's never i think going to be a feature a necessary feature again i hope i hope we don't go backwards well then also with that like it's just it goes back down to the sustainability you know preserving like um the world we sort of live in that you know technology is really going to help with that um i also think going back to you know these funds and the vcs you know vcs should be on our you know ahead of you know the traditional funds and agencies but they're really working like hand in hand to obviously like um, Fifth Wall, you know, they've raised a, you know, a climate tech fund, which obviously focused completely on that sort of space. And they're, um, the people that we're sort of working with to raise it, that will, a lot of them from the sort of traditional sort of um, uh, real estate area. So, yeah, no, it's really exciting. And I think the beauty of this space is, is that everyone, it's all about collaboration. It's all about everyone sort of championing each space, but working together. So if we see more of that, I mean, it should be happy days for the, uh, I guess, progressiveness and innovation in this space. Yeah, you know, there, there are a couple of um, there are a couple of services that feed into a growing or a sector that really you can read a lot into. And I think recruitment is one of those. So um, in terms of like, can you share with us maybe, you know, who's hiring at the moment? What types of startups are they more established? Have they funding? You know, what's the profile? And, and feel free to name drop. <laughs> Yeah, um, I can't be careful about name because I don't <laughs> want to give any biases to some of my clients. And our clients completely sort of vary to, God, you've got the guys from BTS and Wise Squad. I mean, their success stories, their product isn't super technical, but they serve a clear value proposition within leasing and connectivity, which is what we all sort of need. Um, who is hiring? That's a really good question. So to give you, um, we were just looking at, who, I guess, for our business, how it's grown. Our roles are up by nearly 200% this month to last year, which is crazy. Um, yeah. So we we got a team, so our business started two years ago. Our team's now uh, 20 people. We've got five more people starting uh, next month. We've got a further five to make sure that we're delivering. What roles are being hired for? So if we focus on the, uh, the startups, um, so that could be some from... Um, you know, early stage one, there's a business called Instagram, which does deposit free at renting onto the desk, which obviously lots of people want now because, you know, there's a lot, no one wants to do the upfront cost, especially in the sort of market, no one knows when they're going back. So they could hire for someone who's launching a product in you know, a head of business development to, at the end of the day, you, in this environment, everyone needs to keep growing their products. So they all constantly need good product people, good data scientists, good engineers. And then you have your um, later stage ones like, BTS and Wisecord who are launching across the world. So they're going to need country managers. But with that, they need all the other tech support, salespeople, customer success. And then you have um, you have obviously the big, larger funds like Oxford Properties, which I think really have been pushing forward. And 
in making sure they are one step ahead of other businesses and digitalizing so they could hire anyone from you know someone in like iot you know data it, it, it's at the end of the day it's all things come down to data that's where the skills shortages are and that's where we all consistently see hires and then you have the vcs who you know they're constantly trying to find good people who can sort of with experience in successful access exits and sort of I guess raising the funds but honestly I couldn't pinpoint where we're seeing um where we're seeing most highs what I could pinpoint is where we're seeing most skill shortages and that is in the data scientist space really good um uh SaaS sales professionals um and where else would I say good product managers those are the three areas of skill shortages and I think a lot of it comes down to one you know this prop tech industry um within real estate software you have the first first generation of the MRI and Yardies you have that but then otherwise in the past sort of three years there's not so many people and everyone folks in the UK have been doing it and the US fine you can find someone who's been doing it for a lot longer but that's where the skill shortage is because it's just such an early stage in this business so for a lot of these roles when it comes down to the data or SaaS sales we're bringing them in from other industries which are similar so like this you know fintech that can you move over you know you've got to look at what sort of products are out there what sort of similar sort of sales cycles and then you know data scientists what are the big data companies where can we head up them out and a lot of talent at the end of the day talent will follow investment that's why more people want to go into sustainability space hopefully hopefully for ethical moral reasons but also because they'll they'll follow investment um so i think we're seeing a lot of people realizing the mass expansion investment of this sector and how big it can be so it's actually a lot easier to head on people from tech to hey have you seen what's happening 32 billion dollars investment no, what we saw in fintech is now going to happen to prop tech. And so that sort of piece is moving quite well, well for us. But yeah, it's across the board, we're seeing um, mass hires and I've, we're going to continue to see it as well. I think it's interesting when you talk about people coming from other sectors, because traditionally, if we were looking at this uh, 10 or 15 years ago, um, all middle to senior management across property, uh, property management, construction um, and property development generally, unless they came from an accounting background, they tended to be people who were born and raised in property or certainly mm. from early career uh, right up up through um, in property. So you didn't have many people, you know, certainly, you know, unless it was maybe on a marketing role or something, you didn't see people jump industries in their 40s, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, you know, so if you'd been in retail, suddenly jumping into construction, it just didn't happen. Whereas I think technology has been a great enabler that actually it is making that really necessary. And I see the the drive, particularly on the construction tech side, you know, mm. everything related to offsite construction methodology. Suddenly you're bringing in anybody who has a strong manufacturing and process driven industry. So those transferable skill sets are becoming really interesting. And yeah. Are you seeing a trend because, you know, obviously we're all in lockdown, we're all operating remotely. Is that reflected in the roles that you're recruiting for now at the moment? How, how you know, location specific are they, you know, both for a region and for a country? Yeah, and um, this, uh, yeah, really good question. And 
all businesses are open to sort of remote working now, all our clients realizing, you know what, we don't have to pay a London salary, like, or in the US, why, they're not, they're saying to us, fine, as long as they're based on the east or west coast, that's fine with us and they can work in our time zones, but ideally don't want to pay a San Francisco um, salary or New York salary, which is on average about 50% more than you have in the other sort of states, you know, and we're seeing so many people relocate to like Denver, Atlanta, you know, Austin. Um, one, because it's like, a, you know, they get more more like uh, value for their, for their buck at the end of the day. Uh, it's better lifestyle for them. And they can now have access to all the job opportunities. So, yeah, I think it's the same thing for universities as well. Lots of um, businesses uh, used to target universities. Um, and now the, all these students realizing they don't have to go to that university to be headhunted. You know, they don't have to just go to MIT or something like that. So this, yeah, the remote workforce, I think, will stay on. And you know, everyone talks about, you know, are we ever going back to the office? We definitely will. That's where innovation all happens. That's where also if you want to hire this young talent, they want to be around people. They don't want to just be, you know, working on their own, like, I miss my team so much. I'm right now in like uh, my room in into the Southwest London and I spend my time on Zooms to my team and I think it completely sucks. And if I ever want to maintain my team at LMRE, I know I'm going to have to get them back in the office as soon as it's safe to. Um, I think going on to what you were sort of saying about attracting talent from other industries should probably bring us on quite well into um a big issue which we've had in real estate and now we're slowly addressing and that's obviously the diversity issue you know of of the whether it's sort of gender race you know sexual orientation but also like diversity will bring innovation and fresh sort of ideas and perspectives which is what I think this real estate technology industry really really needs I don't know if you sort of agree with that as well oh I definitely agree through PropTech Ireland um we have had contacts through about 140 to 150 startups four of those actually three of those have been female-led and one has had a, a senior female person in it so yeah. our hit rate for, I mean, diversity covers a whole manner of things, but in Ireland, what I'm seeing is a uh, gender diversity for PropTech is so far below even the shockingly low uh, gender diversity in, in uh, generic tech. So, um, hmm. yeah, this is, this is definitely an issue right down to actually on this podcast. Um, you know, we're, we actually are ascribed to a women on air um, ethos where we are constantly looking to showcase female voice in the industry, particularly in construction. And um, it, it can be difficult because it is such a uh, um, construction, obviously, is still very male dominated. But I'm surprised at how male dominated prop tech is. I just wasn't expecting that because across property management, <laughs> we're seeing a really good spread. So yeah. I'm really surprised by that, actually. So are you telling me you're seeing, you know, in terms of where are you seeing the lack of diversity overall? And I'm sure this will vary country to country, but you um, know, where are the big problem areas? Where are the big problem? Well, I think <laughs> startups are known for just being chaotic. One thing I will really, um, what idea am I about startups? They're a big thing which they talk about is sort of um, getting their sort of culture right and like, making sure they have diverse teams and they're doing they're doing a really good job. And I think that comes down to fundamentally at the beginning of their growth cycle in, you know, they make sure they have like a, uh, where it's a head of diversity or head of culture. And that's 
that's brought into like step one or two of the interview process, which really sort of promotes, you know, inclusiveness. They also make sure they tap into different sort of whether it's like demographics and programs. So they're not just headhunting. There's like so many like biases which big funds and institutions go to. If you just look on their job specs, they have like, right, I want to see someone coming from X university. But like, I don't think the best talent will come to, this comes down to um, educational experience. Like if you're going to an innovative business or or whatever it may be, it comes down from like job experience as well and life experience. And like, I'm not saying it comes down just purely life. Like it means, say a data scientist working, you know, the work that some of these um, young young people do outside of, you know, going to university. It's amazing all these online programming courses you can do it doesn't just come down to universities um uh one thing which i'm seeing a lot of the larger businesses do um global agencies they're they're trying to ensure that their senior change management you know has way a women ambassador or something like that because look yeah again your young talent they don't want to go work for a business just full of like uh white men i've had so many people turn these roles down because they're like let's that's not the sort of environment which I want to go into. And it's definitely something which we're going to have, we're going to see a further growth in. In Cushman and Wakefield, and I guess uh, Great Portland States, they have, you know, uh, cultural diversity and innovation ambassadors, you know, across all the teams. And that's really important. It could be, you know, we go back to the idea of um, inclusiveness, collaboration, and that's going to come down from having people in every single team you know, promoting these things, coming up with new initiatives as a tiny thing. That doesn't cost the business money, but it does like it, it sets like a sentiment for it to ensure it's happening across all teams. So I think super important, but it's really hard. And for us to like provide diverse talent, it's so impossible. Because what you said, you know, technology, you know, male, real estate changing, but fairly white and male. So yeah. we're now working with various associations globally. So uh, there's a great uh, business called Collective that has um, come um, to... Ap- apologies, Louisa, your line just broke up there. Unfortunately, one of the downsides of recording remotely. So um, uh, can you just repeat the name of that organisation, please? Oh, perfect. Can you hear me now? Yeah, perfect. Yeah, the PropTech Collective. Um, we have something super exciting coming out this week, which I will share with you when this comes out. But very exciting report which hasn't been done yet in the world um but they have there's something like 250 startups part of it all the funds REITs institutions in Canada are part of it and then it basically they do constant webinars forums panels but it's generally it's a consistently active group anyone's welcome to join and when we say diverse it's not just a women's group okay because there's loads of these just women's organizations it's men well white people black, everyone's part of it and that's really helpful collaboration and innovation there's other you know there's so many um associations people can sort of tap into and that's what we've really been focusing on as a business now uh, to try and ensure that when we're doing a shortlist it, it is diverse, but it is pretty difficult. And some of our clients will pay us literally about 10% more to ensure we find them, you know, a female head or something like that. Do you think the diversity conversation is on the right track? Because, look, I, I think it's really important that we talk about gender, ethnicities, um, 
whether it's hiring people with disabilities. You know, quite frankly, if I wasn't self-employed for the last decade and a half, I would have been a terrific token hire for any business. <laughs> I know this. But look, what I'm seeing in PropTech, you know, particularly, you know, we're talk- there's such a focus on uh, data as well. Are we seeing a lack of diversity of mindset, of um, patterns of thought, how, how people think, how people approach things? Because, you know, we're seeing a lot of engineering mindsets coming through. And, you know, one thing we know about innovation is that you need diverse, uh, you, diverse thinking. Mm. Is there a focus on that within traditional organizations? Um, yeah, so I did. Yes, there is. I think they're all trying to work out how can they almost. You can't tell someone to think um, creatively, but what you can do, you can set an environment where you give them access to. What it could be, you could bring startups in to talk to the the younger people your business. Be like, hey, have you ever thought about this or this sort of product? So, I did a presentation to Reamtech, which is Real Estate Investment Management Tech Association. So you have AXA, Viva, Pigeon, they're all part of it, and they all want to know how can they make people inside that organization think more creatively. And I was like, okay, before, before I did this presentation, I am. Um, we did a we did a survey where we were asking uh, fifty surveyors analysts who all, we've all placed into a startup company. What how do they make the move? What can the businesses do? And they said one having senior change management really sort of basically doing talks on the importance of innovation, how to basically reimagine the future of real estate. Uh, another one was sort of upskilling. So that could be sort of giving them access to um, different courses online or just talking about the differences. You know, Anthony Slumbers does amazing, you know, the Real Innovation Academy. There's so many like really short machine learning courses, which will give someone a little flavor of what it's what sort of roles you can go into. So a lot of it comes down to like early stage education and then giving people all, all the access to data and learning facilities but at the end of it you can't tell someone to think uh, to be inquisitive of it you would hope if you give them all the tools they would go use them and then hopefully that should start progressing them (laughs) yeah I mean look I you know what I I think a big part of it is you know you mentioned there that some companies come to you and say we want to hire from x uh, university or maybe from x institution and Mm. to me that's how you get more of the same but um, look, this is this is something that I could talk to you all day about. Um, so, but unfortunately, we do need to wrap up. Before I let you go, Louisa, you know what are because because you have this lovely spread, um, you know, across the entire ecosystem. You know, what are the lessons that need to be learned? Um, you know, from the real estate world for you know for traditional players who actually want to make the move towards prop tech. Traditional, okay. I think, well, for people looking to enter the space. Yeah, or even for traditional firms that haven't started to dip their toe in the water yet, you know, in terms of digital transformation. You know, what what do they need to know? What do they need to be aware of? Yeah, well, I I think the first thing they need to do is make sure their their CEO or whoever it is, is fully on board with digitalization, looking at timeframes of it and then promoting it across their whole business. Um, I think a lot of these players are, you know, they're watching a few other businesses do it first before um, they start investing in technology or adopting it. And those guys that 
those are the guys who are going to actually end up losing profit, you know, market shares. So it's, it's, I'm not saying it's a race, but people definitely need to be taking it seriously because it, it's happening right now. Um, what can they do? I think they just, they need to start talking to these VCs. They, you know, they need to start talking to these, um, saying influencers, but the thought leaders and then start trialing to go meet these startups. You know, there's some amazing success stories. Like I mentioned sort of ETS and mentioned sort of wide scores. It's amazing. Like talk to the big software businesses if you're worried about the startups. You, you know, everyone's using Voyante, MRI, Yardi. But this, go talk to them, go pilot them, bring them in and just, you know, everyone's going to have reservations. There's no perfect product out there. But until they know what what um, problem you have in your business, they can't help you, uh, can't tell you about product that could help deliver on that. So go speak to people, go learn. Louisa, <laughs> you forgot the most important advice and that is to listen to your own podcast, The Propcast, oh, yeah. <laughs> which which we do feature on iPropertyRadio.com um, and it's excellent. You're starting, are you starting into your what season are you? It's, yeah, we've got season, we've got season four coming out nearly now. And then we have already our lineup for season five. So yeah, anyone listening today, check out um, the Propcast, which I'm host of and have it. Uh, basically, it's about bridging the gap between the real estate professionals, the techno- technologists and the VCs globally. And uh, if you want to hear about certain trends, topics, or from certain businesses, just shoot us an email at NMRE. Um, podcast.co.uk and uh, we'll come back to you but yeah I'm looking for ideas and check it out super and I can definitely recommend that it's one of my favorites and it's one that I'm subscribed to even before it went on to the iProperty radio channel I I was subscribed to that so I love it thank you so much Um, and thank you for joining us here today that was Louisa Dixon co-founder of LMRE that's it from us this week thank you for listening into Property Matters on Dublin South FM you can get in touch with the show on social media at iProperty Radio or indeed email hello at iPropertyRadio.com also, my thanks to Peter Rice on sound and show producer Katie Tallon of Hear Me Roar Media. We're back at the same time next week for myself, Carol Tallon, and all the team here. Stay safe.